So good morning once again, brethren, and I bring you greetings from uh, your brethren in Toronto. And it's, it's really wonderful to be here. I don't remember when it was the last time. I think it's uh, maybe a year ago or so that we were here. Anyway, let's begin by looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6 through 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6 through 11. It says, Now these things, these things became our examples, referring to the things that happened to ancient Israel. These things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink, and they rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by the serpents. Verse 10. Nor murmur, nor murmur, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed by the destroyer. And then verse 11, Paul writes, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition on whom the ends of the ages have come. And so... This word, this Bible that we have, it's for us. It chronicles the experience of the people of God, Israel, throughout the ages. It told us what happened to them. It told us of their relationship with God and how that relationship established that covenant relationship with them and how that relationship broke down. And we saw the fate of Israel. But God didn't just make those things. He didn't just allow those things to happen just to give us bedtime story reading. What is written here, brethren, is for our learning. Uh, those things happened, it says, that we might learn from their examples. And so what I'd like to do today in this message is for us to take a look at ancient Israel, their experience, what they went through, the walk in the wilderness, coming out of Egypt. What was it, what was it that caused them not to enter into that promised land? What was it, what was missing and as we look at that, we learn from that example that we ourselves do not make the same mistakes. Because let's face it, brethren, we are being called to enter into that promised land. It's the promise that God holds out to us. But Paul himself says, you know, we could fall short. We could fall short. And maybe in your own experience, you have known of people who have fallen short. But, you know, God is the judge. What will be their ultimate end? But the warning, brethren, is to us that we take these things, the story that's written here, the story of ancient Israel, that we learn from their example, that we don't fall short of entering into that promised land. And so we go back and we look at ancient Israel. There were slaves in Egypt for 430 years. And it says to the exact day of that 430 years, God brought them out of Egypt on their way to this promised land. And we see how God devastated their oppressors, the Egyptians, who had kept them in bondage for 430 years by killing their firstborn. That was the most dramatic of all, of, of, of all the, um, the plagues. And then, of course, we've just been through the Passover season, commemorating us coming, Israel's coming out of Egypt, us coming out of the Egypt of this world, going on to that promised land. But the thing to note, brethren, is that, yes, there was this Passover when this dead angel struck Egypt. But they had to do something. The instructions were, as, this, as God's servant Moses gave them that instruction, that they had to kill this lamb, this firstborn lamb, this, this first year lamb, and they had to daub that blood of the lamb over their doorposts so that when that dead angel passed through, when it saw the blood... The angel would know, don't touch this house. They couldn't just, you couldn't just sit around because you were an Israelite. You couldn't just sit around and say, oh, I'm in Goshen. Oh, I'm God's, you know, I'm one of God's chosen. Oh, this lamb business, why bother with this? This is a gory stuff. 
putting blood over your doorposts. God will protect us. I suggest to you that if anyone took that approach, the same dead angel that, that marched into the houses of the Egyptians and killed their firstborn, that their firstborn would also have died. So they had to do something. They had to obey what God said. Put that blood over your doorpost. And so the same it is to us, brethren. We can be here. We are, we are called by God to be a part of this body. But that does not guarantee us automatic protection from what is to come. We have to do something. We have to obey God, and we have to trust Him. And so, you know, it's not just a matter of we, we coming here. <laughs> you know, I come to church, you know. I'm a part of this congregation. So automatically, that's, you know, I'm set. That's my insurance policy. It's not just association, brethren. It's a personal relationship with the Creator. It's a personal relationship with God. And it's not just by affiliation. It's not just because we're affiliated with the church, or your family member comes here, or... It doesn't work that way, brethren. We know. It's a personal relationship. It's a covenant relationship. And we all have to honor that covenant relationship and do what he says. Do what God says. And so as the story goes, we we know this. We've just been through the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread. They were here. They were coming out of Egypt and on the way towards this promised land. And we know the story as they got to Migdal, um, between Migdal and the Red Sea, when they were at this point in their journey, as, you, as, as <laughs> the worst thing could ever happen, Pharaoh decided, you know what? I cannot allow these people, the backbone of my economy, I cannot allow these people to get away. <laughs> How is the economy of Egypt going to function if we allow the, 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 these people who are supposed to be here doing the work, building the pyramids, doing all these things? We can't just let our, our bread and butter get away like that. And so it says God hardened his heart. But, you know, it was really in his heart. He didn't really, meant, he didn't really mean to let them go. So he decided to pursue them. And so here it was, brethren, as we know the story. Israel was caught between, what you might say, between hell and high water. Because before them was the Red Sea. Behind them was the enemy coming to capture them, coming to take them back into bondage, back into slavery. And so they had a dilemma. What would they do? We know what they did. They began to, to grumble. They almost wanted to kill Moses. You bring us out here. Better we had been in Egypt, where we had all the onions and the garlics. Lies. They didn't have all of what they, 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 they said they, they, they had. But that's what fear does to people. It distorts our perception. It, 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 it makes us forget the reality of our situation, even what we are coming from. So they began to murmur. Let's turn to Exodus uh, chapter um, 14. Because this seemed to have been Israel's song, murmuring, complaining, a natural reaction. Exodus 14, we read verse 11 and 12. It says, And they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us out of Egypt? Is, it not because, is, it, is this not the word that we told you in Egypt saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. Very distorted perception. Very distorted reasoning. God had freed them from the oppression that they had lived under for 430 years. And here now they reach a place, they, they're at this point where their lives, yeah, it's It's threatened. The Red Sea, too deep to cross. Behind them is the enemy. They can't turn back. The enemy is coming to get them. And so they they had a dilemma. And in a sense, it's understandable, their reaction. But we have to learn from ancient Israel. That's, That's not the way to go. We will all face our threats. We will all face our Red Sea. We'll all face that enemy coming behind us. We have to learn from ancient Israel the way not to go. We have to learn the right way to approach things, to trust God, not to fear the enemy, but to trust the one who is able to deliver us. He delivered them out of Egypt, and he was perfectly capable to take them to that promised land, but they didn't believe it. And so we go down to um, chapter 14 here. here. This was uh, Moses' uh, instruction to them. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. 
And I'm saying, do not be afraid. Has anyone here ever experienced fear? Is anyone here afraid? I know. But I'll talk about that a little bit later. When we face threats, the, the, the natural, normal reaction is to be afraid. It's never the first thing to know. I'm facing a threat here. To cry out to God, Father, help me. I am afraid. And it's, there's nothing wrong in being afraid. What is wrong is what we do with that fear. Do we yield to that fear, or do we look to the one who is able to deliver us from our fears? The one who is able to deliver us from any threatening circumstance or situation that we face. Says, Moses said to them, do not be afraid. Stand still. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he shall accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see them never again, no more, forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. That's it, brethren. We have to allow God to fight the battles for us. You see, too often, we rely on our own strength. We face things that are threatening us. We face things that frighten us. And rather than appealing to God, Father, help me. I don't have the strength. I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the understanding. I don't have the resources to meet this situation. But God does. And so he calls upon us to learn from Israel, to look to him, allow him to fight those battles for us and not take it on in our own hands. Stand still, brethren. And I say to you today, whatever those battles that you may be facing now, whatever those battles that are even yet to come, remember what Moses said here to ancient Israel. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. It will work out. God is a way maker, and he always makes a way for us. Always. He never fails. I, I cannot tell you that God has ever failed me once. I can tell you that I've failed him a lot of times. And if we are all honest, I think we can all say the same thing. He has never failed any one of us. Never let us down. But we have let him down a lot of times. So my encouragement to you, brethren, is what Moses said here to ancient Israel. Stand still. Seize salvation. Let him fight the battles for you. He's fought a lot of battles for me. He's delivered from a lot of situations. And I know he's not partial. Same love he has for me, I'm sure he has it for each and every one of us. So let's trust him to do that. And as we know, the story continued. They were going out. They, God did the, mirac the mirac miraculous thing. He took them to the bank of that Red Sea. And as we know the story, tell Moses, stretch your rod across to the wards of the sea. And he parted the Red Sea. They were able to cross over on dry ground. And the word tells us that the Egyptian attempting to do the same in their silly pursuit, God brought back the waters on them and they drowned in the midst of the sea. The same God who delivered ancient Israel, brethren, is the same God whom we serve today. He has not lost his power. He has not lost his touch. He has not lost his love for us, brethren. He loves us just the same. And he was, he was able to deliver ancient Israel. I'm telling you, I can bank my life on it that he's able to deliver me, he's able to deliver you, whatever the circumstance or situation that you might face in this life. And so we know he did that for them. So they were across on the other side of the Red Sea. And as you would know it, it happened again. A difficult situation, and what do they do? Oh, Moses, we are hungry. We don't have meat. We don't have bread. Did you bring, out, bring us out in the middle of this, this desert to, to let us starve to death? Better we were in Egypt. Better we had perished in Egypt under the oppressors than you bring us out here to die in this wilderness. And this was only one month after leaving Egypt. You read of that in, in, in Exodus chapter 16. One month after coming out of Egypt, they were complaining and grumbling again. And God is so merciful. God is so loving, so kind, and so gracious. You would think, <laughs> you know, you would have just, maybe, I know what I'd probably do. I'd get, I'd get so fed up, I'd just, just wipe them out. <laughs> but you know, I'm, I'm glad that God is not like me. <laughs> and he's changing me. 
because maybe that's, what, that's the way I probably would have done it maybe years ago. But I've experienced so much of his grace and mercy that I think I would do like he did. Be patient with them. Be gracious unto them. Be merciful to them. And keep pouring out that love. And that's what he did again. He rained bread from heaven. They called it manna. They didn't know what it was. It wasn't anything that they had experienced before. Brought in meat, flying meat, quails. And he provided for them another miracle. And that is significance that he rained bread from heaven. Let's take a turn. Let's take a look at this thing, this question of the bread from heaven. Because this was, in a way, a type of the living bread that was to come many years later, hundreds of years later, in the form and in the person of Jesus Christ, the bread from heaven. Let's turn quickly to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Some of these should be probably fresh in your mind because having just been through the Passover on the Days of Unleavened Bread, we might have gone through some of these scriptures. Uh, John chapter 6, uh, verse 35. Breaking in the middle of it here, Christ said, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven. You know, the people are thronging him for physical bread. They were hungry. And he says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread. You see, they, they, all they could see was the physical. All they could see was the physical. They couldn't get the spiritual intent of what he was trying to communicate to them. And Jesus said to them in verse 35, I am the bread of life. And this is one of the many I am statements. I think there are about eight of them. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the vine. So he was telling I am the I am the ever-living one. The eternal, self-existent creator God, he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So he was offering them, brethren. He was offering them that spiritual food, that bread, that when you eat of it, you will never again hunger. You'd never again, again thirst. He was offering them himself. Uh, let's skip down to uh, verse uh, 48. It says again, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, but they are dead. They ate that physical bread, but it didn't keep them. It didn't keep them alive. They are now dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh which I shall give for the life of the world. And so he was offering them himself. Eat of me. That was the invitation he was giving them. Eat of my flesh, drink of my blood, and you will live forever. So, brethren, we know the story. Israel didn't eat of that living bread. Israel didn't believe God. And they failed to enter that promised land because of their unbelief and because of their disobedience. They didn't obey the word of God. They said they would. And the covenant, they said, all that the Lord said we would do, but they didn't do it. They didn't believe him. They didn't trust him. And so we know they perished in the wilderness because of their idolatry, their Sabbath breaking, their unbelief, all of that, brethren. And only the ones who truly believed, Joshua and Caleb, and those under 20 years, it said, that actually enter into that promised land. So belief, brethren, is absolutely important. Just let's uh, turn quickly to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1 to 3. Deuteronomy 8, verse 1 to 3. It says, Every commandment which I command you today you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in the, and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers. Verse 2. 
And you shall remember the Lord your God, that he led you all the way these 40 years. That they were 40 years wandering around in the wilderness, not getting anywhere, like being on a treadmill. 40 years in the wilderness. And why did God do this? It says, to humble you and to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you. He allowed you to hunger. He fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you to know, that he might make you to know this, that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And this was the same quote. This was the same scripture that Christ quote at the beginning of his ministry when the devil took him into this wilderness and said, you know, here, you're hungry. You've been farting for 40 days. You've been farting just as just, you've been fasting for 40 days, just like Israel was 40 days wandering in the wilderness, a day for a year. And so Christ, here he was, fasting for 40 days. The enemy came up to him and said, you're hungry. Here's stone. You have the power. Turn this into bread and eat. Satisfy your hunger. And he does the same thing to us, brethren. What we ought to learn, brethren, is that just as God did with ancient Israel, sometimes God will allow us to go through situations to test us. He may bring some sickness upon us. He may allow us to be sick to test us. Are we going to trust him? Are we going to trust others? Are we going to trust ourselves? He may allow us to go through a trial. Are we going to trust him to, if he takes us to that trial, are we going to trust him to take us through it? Are we going to rely on ourselves? Are we going to just going to give up? And, you know, I can't believe this. I made this commitment to follow you. And, and look what I'm going through. Look at such and such over there. Doesn't even believe in you. And he's so prosperous. Drive the fanciest car. Have the biggest house. Have this nice job. And, and all these years I've been so faithful. And, and where I am, what have I gotten for this? Is that supposed to be our approach, brethren? Some people. I, I've, I've encountered it in my short stay. In my short little time of being called into this church, the body of Christ. I've seen it. And I've seen many fall by the wayside. Just because their perception become dis- became distorted. They failed to see that the same God who would bring you to a trial is also able to take you through it. And he may allow you to come to this point just to test you, to see what's in your heart. Do we really trust him? Do we really believe him? Are we going to trust him to work things out? Or are we going to take things into our own hands? It's up to us. And then, as we look at this, this bread that came down from heaven, he was also the new deliverer. Just as Moses was the deliverer to take Israel out of Egypt, so also Jesus came as this new deliverer, the great deliverer, the ultimate deliverer. Luke chapter 14, verse 18. I won't turn there. But Christ said, you know, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to bring good news. He has called me to preach good news to the poor, to set the captives free. And so this was his mission, to bring deliverance, to bring freedom. But it doesn't come easy, brethren. There is a price, and there's something that we have to do, and that is to believe him. There's something that we have to do, and that is to take his word for what it says. There's something that we have to do, is to make this word be planted in our hearts, that it may change us, that it may transform us to become all that he meant for us to be. Not just knowing the word, brethren, Yes, knowing it, but knowing it to the ultimate sense, which means we believe what it says. We take it for what it says. We believe what God says, and we act upon it. That's the only way the Word is going to transform us. That's the only way it's going to change us to be all that we were meant to be. Let's go back here to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And verse 63. John 6, verse 63, Christ said, The words, the words that I speak to you, he says, they are what? They are spirit and they are life. This is life, brethren, in a package. 
This is what he offers us. He says, when we take this word, his word, when we inculcate that, when we make that sink deep into our hearts, when we respond to that word as we should, it says that will bring, give us life, true life, eternal life. Romans chapter 12, a scripture which I'm sure many are very familiar with, Romans chapter 12. says, I beseech you, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be what? Be transformed. Be transformed. Be changed. How? By the renewing of your mind. This is where it's at, brethren. Here and here. Head and heart. And he calls upon us to be transformed in our thinking. What God is saying to us, what Paul is saying to us, is we need to rewire our brains. We need to rewire our thinking. We need to think differently. If we used to think a certain way, which wasn't getting us anywhere, we need to start thinking. Let the mind of Christ be in you. Being transformed. And do not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so this is what we want to look at, brethren. Seeing how the word can transform us. Seeing how the word can change us. Make us better persons. Make us be all that God intended for us to be. For us truly to fulfill our potential. Let's go back to the book of John here. The words of Jesus Christ. John chapter 8. John chapter 8 and verse 31 to 36. Here it was that these people were strong in Christ and they were only coming for the physical, what they could get, what could satisfy their hunger, just for the moment. All they wanted was a quick fix. We have to want more than a quick fix, brethren. We want what will, what will remain with us, what will take us, brethren, to that ultimate goal, eternal life, to the kingdom of God. So John chapter 8, verse 31. Let me read from verse 30. And he spoke these words, as his Christ spoke these words on many who believed in him. So they believed in him. They, they probably believe a lot of things about him. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples. Here it is again, brethren. The word, the word, the word, the word, the word. If you abide in my word, if you remain in my word, and my, my word remains in you, if you abide in my word, you truly are my disciples indeed. And, you, and, he, and this is a seminal statement, brethren. Verse 32, John chapter 8. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, or set you free. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. It's wanting to know the truth, brethren. But if it's not doing anything for your life, what's the point? (laughs) I think of this. Let's, let's draw the distinction between knowing something and really, really knowing. The type of knowing that, that is active, the type of knowing that means something. My wife knows a little bit about um, a CPR. I think she even got a certification at one point in time. But in as much as she knows and understands the basics of CPR, it's of no value. If I were to fall down here, God forbid, and I was just and I'm having a heart attack or something. I'm, I'm dying. And she knows her CPR. And she said, oh, you know, oh, yes, this is what they told me. Oh, this is what I learned in CPR. And she just sat there with all her knowledge in CPR. And she did nothing about my being here. If she didn't come here, put her mouth to mine and do that mouth-to-mouth resuscitation or whatever else you, know, you need to do, I would just drop dead. I would just remain dead on the floor. So that's what I'm saying is, brethren, is that it's not... It's not what we know. It's what we do with what we know. 
It's what you use this knowledge, what you use this truth to do. How is it changing you? Is it making a difference, a real difference in our lives? That is what truth is supposed to do. In fact, it's supposed to set us free. That's what Christ said here. You shall know the truth, knowing. You think of that word again. It, it goes back to, um, I, I think, back to Genesis, when Christ said, you know, they, 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 well, not Christ, well, Christ, yeah, he was a spokesman. When the word said, um, Adam knew his wife, it's a euphemism. It's a euphemism for an intimate relationship. It's a euphemism for something very, very close, very, very personal. And so he says, you shall know the truth. Have that kind of a relationship. That kind of, the truth is so much a part of us that it brings us into this intimate relationship with who, him who is the author of the truth. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they answered him, the people who are listening to Christ, say, we are Abraham's descendants, and we were never in bondage. Duh. <laughs> we were never in bondage. Well, uh, granted, they didn't have the whole Bible like this, <laughs> Genesis to Revelation. So it, I, I give them the benefit of the doubt. They might have forgotten since they... They might have forgotten since they didn't have all of this stuff here packaged so they could have seen that, well, oh, we, went, we came out of Egypt and this was what happened. We were in bondage and all of this kind of stuff. But anyway, he says, we are never in bondage. How can you say we will be free? Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin and a slave does not abide in the house forever. Therefore, verse 36, he says, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. If the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. So when we're talking about the Word and the Word setting us free, another way of saying that is Christ setting us free because He is the Word. He says, I am the way, John 14, verse 6, I believe. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. So He is truth. He is the embodiment of truth, and He's the one to set us free. It says, if we abide in the word, John 15, verse 7 through 8, we won't turn there, but it says, abide, you know, if, I, if you abide in my word and my word abide in you, you'll ask whatever you will, according to God's will, of course, and it will be done for you. But the truth also has to find a fertile ground to set in, a fertile heart, a heart that is receptive to receiving the word. Matthew 13, you know, the parable of the, 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 the sower. So the, the heart has to be fertile to receive this word. And we truly have to believe the word. John 7, uh, Matthew 7 and verse 21, you can take that down. Matthew 7 and verse 21. It says not just a matter of mouthing it. It's not just a matter of saying it. But it's a matter of doing it. A matter of acting up on it. You see, brethren, it is possible to be set free. Christ said, you shall know the truth. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. It is possible to be set free and not be transformed. It is possible to be set free and not be transformed. We need not only to be set free by the truth, brethren, but also to be transformed, to be changed. You think of it, you think of ancient Israel. Yeah, they came out of Egypt as slaves, but they still had a slave mentality. They didn't behave as people who were truly were free. They were still in bondage. And we have seen it even in today's day and age. People who have come out of slavery, even in this country, the African-American experience. But a lot of people still have this slave mentality. They are still bound. Back. Their thinking hasn't changed. God wants to change us, brethren. He wants us, this word, to come in us so that it will change us, transform us from who we are to what we are supposed to be. Let's read Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1 to 2. Because this was what happened to ancient Israel. This was their failing. This was their shortcoming. This was their downfall. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, since the promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you be seem to come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. They heard the gospel just like we did. But the word which they heard did not profit them 
Why did it not profit them? Not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. And so if we hear this word, brethren, and we don't mix it with faith, if we don't actually believe it, it's not going to be of any benefit to us. It's not going to profit us. It's not going to do us any good, just as it did in ancient Israel, no good. They didn't benefit from the word. It didn't benefit them because they didn't believe. You know, brethren, as we think about the Passover that we've just been through in the days of unleavened bread and coming out of the Egypt of this world, we think in the historical context of the African-American slave experience, what they went through, the atrocities of slavery and all of that. We think of the Jewish experience with the Holocaust and you know, many of them dying in concentration camps. But the sad stories, brethren, the sad reality is that a lot of us, even in the church of God, are still in bondage. We are still living in slavery because we, we, we fail to recognize that Christ indeed has set us free. And don't, don't tune me out here because I know sometimes people talk about, and you probably hear it on the radio and on television, preachers talking about being set free or you're free in Christ. And, they, and some people seem to turn that around. Freedom to do what you want. That's not freedom. True freedom is doing what you're supposed to do. Doing what God says to do. And let that, guard, that guide and guard your life. That is true freedom. Honoring God. Doing what he says. Believing him. But I'm afraid, brethren, that many are still in bondage. Many are still living not as free people. Because they are still enchained still having chains and things weighing them down. Galatians 5 and verse 1 says, Stand fast. Galatians 5 verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty, in the freedom by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. There are many bondages. There are many yokes which are holding down people. Many chains that the enemy are using to hold us down. You know, I came up here with my bag. And this is the kind of life that we live. Oh. You know, before God called us, we had all of these things. <laughs> we come with a lot of baggage. Yeah, you laugh, and it's true. We do come with a lot of baggage. You know the baggage that you come with, that God has called you with. But the sad thing is we're... He has called us, and he said he has set us free, but we are still walking around with a baggage, you know, whether it's guilt or fear, insecurities, unforgiveness, hatred, bitterness. I don't know what your baggage is, but a lot of us are still walking around with a baggage. Christ said, I have set you free, but we are still burdening ourselves down with all this baggage and all this luggage. We should throw these off, brethren. Throw them off throw them off. He said he has set us free. Let's take a moment and look at some of these baggage. Because this scripture, the word, gives us the solution. It gives us, this is the liberation, Jesus Christ and his word, to help us to, to, to unshackle ourselves, to help us to get rid of that baggage. Let's look at some of them. Pride. Many people still struggle with it. We are, we are proud before God called us, and we are still very proud. We think so much of ourselves. The word says, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5. Because for every baggage that you have, God has an answer. For every chain that the devil uses to hold us down, God has a chain breaker. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse, uh, verse, verse 5. 1 Peter 5 and verse 5. It says, God resists the proud. I'm just breaking to the last part of the verse. It says, God resists the proud, but he gives more grace to the humble. And if we want an example of what true humility is, let's turn to Philippians chapter 2 and 3. Philippians 2, Christ Jesus, the perfect example of true humility. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. It says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, 
But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. It's not say you, you should despise yourself. It is not say you are to beat down yourself. It's just say, esteem others. Be willing to take a step back to let others go ahead. Be willing to give others the preference. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not out only for his own interests. And it says, you, you, we have to look out for our own interests, because nobody's going to look out for your interests. But it says, don't let your own interests be the all-consuming passion. Look out also, it says, for the interests of others. And chapter 3 and verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Jesus Christ, and have no confidence in the flesh. The prideful have confidence not in Christ, not in God, but in the flesh. If you are relying on your own strength, if I'm relying on my own strength to do what God has called me to do, or to do anything else, then it's an indication of pride. It's an indication that I'm not trusting him to use me. I'm not trusting him to work through me. I'm relying on my own strength. And it says, put no confidence in your own flesh. It's a wonderful thing to do. You know, sometimes, even like at work, I, I, I find myself in situation, and there are some things you don't know. And, I'm, and, and sometimes I'm glad that I don't know, because it humbles me. I can go to somebody else and ask him, how do you do this? Can you help me here? And sometimes when we know too much, it, it can make, really puff us up, because we think, you know, Everybody's not going to run to me. I don't need anybody's help. But it's a lovely experience when you have to go and ask for help. It's a lovely thing. Because it makes you know that you don't have it all. And that you are not the world. Everything doesn't revolve around me. But there are others who God has placed in this world also to be helped to you and for you to help others. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 through 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 through 8. It says, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened, that is, unleavened spiritually. For indeed Christ, our Passover, has, is sacrificed, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Christ said, I'm meek and lowly of heart. Let's, let's follow in his example of humility. Not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but to think in a right way. What's another baggage that some of us carry? Unbelief. We just, we just read that. We see what that did to ancient Israel. But God has an answer for unbelief. In Hebrews chapter 11, he gives that answer, and that is faith. Believing in him, making him the object of our faith. We put our trust in him, that he's able to work things out for us, that he's able to see us through. It says it's the assurance of the things. Assurance is not a gamble. It's an assurance. You can put your life on it. It says it's the assurance of the things we hope for. The evidence. You can bring this to court. It's the evidence of the things that we do not yet see. And it says in verse 6, without this faith, it says, we cannot please him. Our lives cannot please God if we don't trust him. If we don't show him by how we live and how we act that we truly believe what he says. And here's another baggage that many people carry. Unforgiveness. Unforgiveness. Do any of us struggle with that? You know, somebody has hurt you. They have said things against you. They have done you hurtful things. And you, you somehow, I can't let go of this. Man, you call yourself a Christian and you did that to me? You said that about me? How can I forgive you? How can you forgive Listen to the words of Jesus Christ in that model prayer. Forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And in Colossians chapter 3, let's read that one. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 and 13. It says, 
Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so also you must do the same thing. There's nothing, brethren, and I thank God, I, 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 don't, I say this not to brag, but for me, I don't find it hard to forgive people. I do not, honestly. Because I know what God has done for me. I know what he has done for me. And I, I, I tell myself and I rehearse it to myself as often as possible that there's nothing anyone can do me that I cannot forgive them when I think of what Christ has, has, has forgiven me of. We have to tell ourselves these things, brethren. So many people go about with unforgiveness. And it's a burden. People, and, and the person who offended them might have long died. And sometimes the person who offends us don't even know that they have offended us. They don't even know that they have hurt us. When we harbor this unforgiveness, all, the only person it's hurting is us, brethren. Because if you said you cannot forgive someone, it's like being... It's like you're locking them in a prison. And I, I don't know if I've used this example here before, but it's like locking someone in a prison. Oh, so you hurt me. You know what? I'm not going to forgive you. I lock you in this prison, and I have the key, and I said, I'm not letting you out until you, you, you come and you grovel before me and you confess. I won't let you out. But you know what? I am also a prisoner because I have to stay here to keep you locked up. I can't go anywhere else because I have to stay to see that you're in that prison. And so that is what unforgiveness is. It, 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 it makes us prisoners ourselves. And so we have to learn to get rid of that. Another one is guilt and shame. Guilt and shame. Many people live with guilt and shame. Yes. Many people live with guilt and shame. You know, maybe from things in their past. Failings, weaknesses, things that they have done. They can't forgive themselves or... People keep reminding them of what, what they were, and, and it, they walk around with this guilt and shame. The scripture says, Romans 8, Romans 8, verse 1, it says, there's no condemnation, no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus. The blood of Jesus Christ washes and cleanses us from our sins. We don't have to walk around, brethren, and we should not walk around with guilt and shame. If I were to stay here and reflect on my past, if I were to keep looking at that, oh boy, you know what I did and what I used to be, I wouldn't stand up here before you. The only reason I can stand here before you is because Christ has washed me, washed away my sins. It's because Christ, I have been forgiven. And so I don't have to live in my past. I don't have to be weighed on by guilt and shame from my past. That's behind us. Isn't that what Paul said? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I think it's verse 9 to 11. He says, you know, some of you were this, you were, you were thieves and liars and homosexuals and effeminate and all these things. But listen what Paul said. He said, such were, past tense, such were some of you. And so, brethren, we have to get to that place where we believe what God says. The word says, God says, it's not what you were. It's what, it's what you are to become what you are to change, what you are to make the word, this word of truth, transform you so that you don't have to walk around with guilt and shame. Uh, you can take some other scriptures here. You can refer to Psalm 32. It says, blessed are those who are forgiven, whose iniquities is covered. That's freedom from guilt. That's freedom from shame. Fear. That's another baggage. Fear. God has delivered me from that. But, you know, even sometimes when you're delivered, you still have, things still come back. Because the enemy knows your weaknesses. <laughs> he knows your vulnerabilities. And he, he will use those things to play on you. You know, I'm not where I used to be in terms of fear. I, I'm a way, way, way away from that. Thanks to God's deliverance. But sometimes, you know, some things come up. But I, then I remind myself of what God says. And it says it so many times in the word. Do not be afraid. Fear not. Do not be afraid. Fear not. Fear is a crippling thing. Whether it's fear of, uh, and, and fear is usually related to the future. Things that haven't even yet happened. <laughs> things you, you're not even sure if it's going to happen, but you fear it. We fear it. Um, let's read um, 
1 John 4 and verse 18, the solution, God says, it says, um, perfect love, perfect love. 1 John 4 verse 18, perfect love, it says, cast out all fear. And 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7, it says, God says, I have not given you a spirit of fear or timidity, but he has given us of what? A spirit of power, a spirit of power, of love, and of a sound mind. Sound thinking. Fear distorts our thinking, just like the ancient Israel. It was about going to this land, and the, the, most of those 12 from the, the, representing the tribes that went up there, they saw, oh, we see in this land, oh, oh, we are like grasshoppers to them, and we are grasshoppers in there. Said, so, oh, do you know what they were thinking? How could you know that they're thinking that you look like grasshoppers? It's distorted thinking. It distorts our thinking and our reasoning. Let's um, turn quickly to Second Chronicles chapter 20. Second Chronicles chapter 20. Second Chronicles 20. I'm getting there. And we just read verses uh, 15 and 17. Just, and some of these scriptures, brethren, I, I hope you would take them down uh, on the paper. But more importantly, let's go back through them from time to time. When we face situations, ask God to help us to, to draw these things, to remember them when we face situations, like with fearful situations, when that demon of fear is, is about to take us over. We can call up and we can re- recite these scriptures, say them aloud. Second Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 15. Listen, all you Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem and you king of Jehoshaphat, king Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid or be dismayed because of this great multitude. For the battle is not yours, but God's. The battle is not ours to fight, brethren, but it's God's. Verse 17, you will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourself, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. These are things we need to remember. These are things we need to hold dear to our hearts. Um, in, in, in the interest of time, you may also take down some other scriptures. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1 to 2. Isaiah 43, 1 and 2. And it tells you that if it, you know, the flood that you may come after to face, it will not drown you, but God will, 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 will use that to wash away things from your life. The fire that he may bring into your life is not to, to consume you, but to burn away those things that are a hindrance in, the, in your relationship with him. Hatred is another baggage that many people carry. I simply say, the word says, love your enemies. Do good for them that hate you and, and spitefully use you. And Matthew 5, 44, you can take that down for your, for your notes. Another baggage we carry is, a lot of people carry emotional baggage and trauma from their past. You know, maybe things that have happened to them and it, it brings triggers, situations. And, you know, the moment something happens and somebody could innocently say something to you, but because of you have been hurt by something in the past, and, and it, 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 it leaves this emotional scar. And somebody could innocently come up to you, say something or do something, not meaning any way to hurt you, but because they don't know that this is a trigger for you, it brings on something and, and you become defensive. You become, it brings back those sad, bad memories. And so it hurts us. The word says to us that we should cast all our cares upon him. Uh, that's First Peter chapter 5 and verse 7. And Paul says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, and he says, forget those things which are behind. Forget those things which are behind and move forward to the mark of the upward call in Christ Jesus. We have to learn to put our past behind us, especially our hurtful past, especially our negative past, especially the past that is so traumatic. Many people are suffering from PTSD today, and it's just because they do not have the capacity to, to bury the past behind them. They do not have the source of help. We have that source, brethren. We can call on God. We can ask him to help put our past, our painful past behind us. Help us to be able to handle it and to deal with it. Philippians 3, verse 13 to 14. Press ahead towards those things. God says he promises us a hope and a future. Jeremiah 29, 11. He promises us a hope and a future, brethren. Another baggage, and I'll just quickly run through some of these. Envy and jealousy is another thing. Uh, answer to that, uh, let's just read um, 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 and 3. 1 Peter chapter 2. 
First Peter chapter 2, verse 1 to 3. Uh, First Peter. They says, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all guile, all hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. There's a little baby. I don't know if she's here. She's still nursing. But what matters to her more than anything else is getting her milk, getting her food. (laughs) She's not concerned about you people here. She's not concerned about how you look. What matters to her is getting food to eat. And it says that we should have that attitude like newborn babes. Desire the word. Don't be too concerned about what people think or what people will say. Desire the word like newborn babes. That is what is supposed to transform us, brethren, to make us become all that we are intended to become. Pleasing people is another baggage, and I'm almost done here now. Pleasing people is another baggage. Let me read what Galatians 1 says, because, you know, sometimes even, you know, in the capacity of being servants of God, sometimes we can get really taken up by what people are going to think and what people are going to say, If I give this message or if I say this, how are people going to receive it? Quite frankly, I don't care what you think. (laughs) And I I don't say that in a disrespectful way. I say what I mean by that is what you think doesn't really matter. In the final analysis, it doesn't matter what you think. What matters is what God thinks because I'm I'm accountable to you to a certain extent. But ultimately, it is he who is going to judge me. And if I fail to do what he says to do because I'm concerned about what you're going to say or what you might think, then I'm not pleasing God. And Galatians chapter, um, what was it, uh, 1 and verse 10, it says, um, it says if, if, if you're a servant of God, then you, if you please people, then you can't be a servant of God. If your object is to please people, it conflicts with being a servant of God. But sometimes what we have to do is that you have to displease people. But the important thing, if you please God, that's what matters. You know, there were those in, in the days of Christ who they didn't confess him. They didn't, they didn't acknowledge him. It says because they, 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 they desired or they honored, they put, elevated the praise of men over the praise of God. It ought not to be so with us, brethren. What matters is what, is what God thinks. And we have to make that be the driving force. And finally, religion. I just ask you to refer to the, the story of the Pharisee and the publican. We become, uh, you know, we can have this baggage where we, we are so engrossed with externals, how people appear or how they sound. It says God looks at the heart. God looks at the heart, and that should be our driving force to make sure that the word is transforming us. It's making our heart right with God. And so, brethren, we need to throw off those baggages. We need to throw out those labels, you know, labels that people put on us or we put on ourselves. We need to throw that away. We need to put that aside and do what the Word of God says. Believe His Word. Act upon it. Let it transform us. We are indeed, brethren, this is what the Word tells us, that we are sons of the living God. The result of being transformed by truth, brethren, is like a process of metamorphosis. It's a complete change. It's like going from, from night, from darkness to light, from, from, from night to day. It's like, it's like this, the song says, it's like a caterpillar, a worm becoming a beautiful monarch butterfly. It's like a lump of coal, a, a dirty lump of coal with, with, with time, with pressure and everything else and heat becoming a, spark, becoming a sparkling diamond. It's, it's like a, that grain of sand, a worthless, grain, useless grain of sand, lodges into the flesh of an oyster, and with time, what does it become? A beautiful pearl. That's the transformation that the Word of God is supposed to do to us, brethren, to change us, change us, change us, that we can become what all that God intends for us to be. But the truth will only transform us, brethren. It will only transform us when we move that truth from head from our head, just from mere head knowledge and intellect, intellectual conception. When we move it to our heart, when it changes our heart, making us become what Christ wants us to be. Changing the way we think, changing the way we act, changing who we are. Let us recommit ourselves, brethren, 
to move the truth from our head to our hearts, to make it change us. And it will happen, brethren, when we put it into practice. And I close with James chapter 1, verse 21 to 25. James 1, verse 21 through 25. It says, Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is, a, which is able to save our souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing himself, his, his, his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, he goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But, but listen to this. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. I pray, brethren, that I hope this message has been of help to you, and I pray it will encourage you to so let the word be in your heart, so let the word come in you, abide in this word, that it may truly transform you, as it has transformed me, and I'm sure it has transformed many of you, but to keep being transformed by that word. May God bless you.